1 Samuel chapter 13, and let's just begin by reading the first two verses, and then we'll just look at some things in way of introduction. 1 Samuel 13, 1, Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose him 3,000 men of Israel, whereof 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and in Mount Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin, and the rest of the people he sent every man to his tent. Now, several things about this verse, just in the way of introduction, that I really want to kind of, uh, I think is relevant. First of all, this is the first mention of Jonathan. Jonathan becomes a, a really a key figure in the Old Testament, became a, a devoted friend uh, to David, and we, we're going to see that he was just really, he was a man of courage, initiative, really an outstanding character. But this is the first mention of him in the Bible. The second thing is this language of verse 1, which is not really clear, where it says, Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel. And so there's a lot of discrepancy about really what that means. Saul reigned one year, and then when he had reigned two years, and I personally believe this one year was a, was a timeline or a testimony or record of Saul's life from the time he was, first of all, remember when he was anointed the king privately by Samuel uh, when he was out looking for his father's donkeys. And, and Samuel privately anointed him. And then he was recognized, he was presented to the people later. Remember when Saul was hiding among the stuff and they were, they, the lot fell upon him. It was clear to Israel so that's when he was kind of presented to Israel, and then he went home from that time, just went home and was busy farming. And when they heard about this attack that came in chapter 11 by the Ammonites, he was out work, working with the livestock. He, so all this is that period of time, that interim, before he actually began um, leading the nation of Israel. And then again in chapter 11, he was confirmed in Gilgal after they defeated the Ammonites. So... So I believe that's what that taught me. He reigned for a year, but then after, and that's all, that was that whole process we just described. Then after two years, it says in verse 1, after, two, after he reigned two years, verse 3, he, he chose an army. He actually assembled, a, uh, number one there in your notes, he assembled a standing army. By the way, anybody else need notes? We've given these notes out. Anybody miss the notes? You got them? Okay, good. Now, let's just, let's just think about this, and this is kind of just history, but it's important. Israel is a nation, a kingdom in and of itself, but they are, they're living in a world, in their world, in their, in their country, in their region, where there was a large Philistine presence there. There were a lot of Philistines there, and we're going to see this great battle that takes place here in just a moment. But um, if, you, if you go back in your mind to the time of um, Samson, for instance, this was a period of the judges that preceded this. During the time of the judges, when Samson was a judge, 
uh, the Bible says, as a matter of fact, let's go to this. Go, go to the left a little bit to Judges chapter 13. Um, judges 13, this was just before we're introduced to Samson, which was one of the key judges. In Judges 13, 1, And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines 40 years. So for 40 solid years, the Philistines were really dominating over Israel. So when we come to these passages like we do in 1 Samuel 13, where we find these Philistines, you might wonder, why are there so many Philistines around? Because they'd really been in charge of the program. They, they had conquered Israel, and so under Saul's reign, they're, gonna, they're trying to regain that control. And so in verse 2 it says, Saul chose, we're back in 1 Samuel 13, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 would be with him. 1,000 would be with his son, Jonathan. And so he, why would he, so do you understand why he, for one thing, why he would draft a standing army? You know, they didn't have an army. Israel didn't have an organized army. So he puts together 3,000 men. It says he sent everyone else to his tent in the last part of verse 2. So notice what Jonathan did in verse 3. And Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba. Now, so, so Jonathan, he, he, attacks the, he takes the initiative. And he takes his men and he attacks this garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba. And, and the rest of the Philistines, the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land. That was the way of notifying the nation, saying, let the Hebrews hear that... Hear what? Hear what's going on. Verse 4, And all Israel heard say that Saul had smitten the garrison of the Philistines. Of course, Saul got the credit for it. Jonathan's the one that initiated the battle. Verse 4, And that Israel also was had an abomination. So this, this warning went out. This blast went out. We've conquered a group of the Philistines, but the, Israel was had an abomination. The, the the, nation, the Philistines are hate, the, that raise the hate level up for the Philistines toward Israel. And the last part of verse 4, it says, And the people were gathered together after Saul and Gilgal. So, so word spreads among the Philistines that Jonathan has attacked them, and so the tension is rising. Word spreads among the Israelites that we're hated of them, and so... So they're going, to get, they're going to assemble together in verse 4. They came together after Saul to Gilgal. Now notice, if you would, in verse uh, 5, this army, how many people are in Saul's army? 3,000. Now let's see how many people the Philistines have gathered together. Verse 5, And the Philistines gathered themselves together to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. In other words, too many people to count. Foot soldiers, too many to count. And they came up and pitched in Michmash eastward from Bethhaven. And so here these Philistines have assembled this intimidating multitude of people. And this is going to, understanding this from a human perspective, helps us understand why Saul was so pressured to do something. And that pressure, of course, led him to make some foolish decisions. Um, 
So, if you're, by the way, if you're filling the blanks, are you up with me so far? Are you doing okay? Okay. I don't want you to miss something there. Okay, so, how, so we got this great army of the Philistines. Now notice how the Israelites saw this, verse 6, when the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait. Strait means in a, in a bad place. Billy Bridges would call that a nine-line bind. They were in a bad, they were in a bad way. I remember that because I went, I went down to Ryder, Texas one time to, to preach in a missions conference and Brother Billy Bridges was there and I was, as I typically do sometimes, I wasn't really early. I wasn't late, but I was, and he met me on the front porch and he said, Brother Thomas, <laughs> you had me in a nine-line bind because he was afraid what was going to happen if I didn't show up. But anyway, so that's where these people are. They're in a strait. For the people were, notice this, verse 6, the people were distressed. Then the people, talking about the people of Israel, uh, Saul's allies. Then the people did hide themselves in the caves and in thickets and in rocks and in high places and in pits. And some of the Hebrews went over Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. They crossed the river, the river Jordan to the east side. As for Saul... He was yet in Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. So this is a very dramatic moment. Uh, this, and so we're just kind of understanding this, you know, the pressure. If you're looking at your lesson there, Saul was facing, number two, a, a series of decisions that would greatly impact his life. And here are all these, these things. You've got the Philistine army that's devastating and they're threatening. You've got the people of Israel that are defecting and they're fearful. They're, they're terrified, and then, you, and then you add to that recipe, you've got Samuel who had not arrived at the time that Saul thought he should have and would have. Look in verse 8. And he, he tarried seven days according to the set time Saul, he, Saul waited seven days according to the set time that Samuel had appointed. So Samuel had told him to wait. But Samuel came not to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. And so you have a perfect storm that's, that's kind of looming over them. The pressure was intensifying, number four there. The pressure was intensifying. Saul felt he could wait no longer. Now, so, so just imagine... What, what Paul or what Saul was feeling. The opposition is growing. There's an army around you so large that they're innumerable, and you got all these chariots and thousands of horsemen. And at the same time, your troops are leaving. They're hiding in caves and thickets, leaving the region, going eastward across the Jordan River. And at the same time, you're waiting on the man of God who said, don't do anything until I get there, and the time is running out. Now, we read a story like this, and you can read a story like this and not, even under, and not even try to wrap your mind around what was going on, but I can feel the pressure that he must have been feeling. You know, if we don't do, you know, like I say sometimes and jest to people, you know, let's do something even if it's wrong. And that's kind of where he was. I feel like I, it's, we can't wait any longer. And by the way, 
you know, you think about these, these times of pressure, that's, that kind of describes, you know, I like to read the Bible and think about how, how can I use that in my life. But that describes sometimes the way we get sometimes. We feel like we have to do something. We're waiting. We're praying. We're not, you know. And that pressure causes us to do things that really are foolish or unwise, ill-advised, rather than, and, and it's a challenge to our faith. And the question under C there, have you, ever, have you ever made a decision under pressure that you would not have made had there been no pressure? And the answer is we probably can relate to that. We probably have done that. I don't like to make, I don't like to make decisions under pressure, right? When I, I was thinking about this as I was preparing this lesson, and uh, a time my wife and I were sh- shopping for a vehicle, and we went to this car lot, and we were, uh, I don't particularly like to buy cars from car lots necessarily. I'd rather buy them from an individual. But we went to this car lot, and we saw a car. We were looking at, we're out there on the parking lot. We're looking at it. Seems like something we might like. There's no price on it. That, there's, the, there's a reason there's no price on it. Because they want to they get, get you in a room with the bright lights shining down on you. And <laughs> so I, they, somebody came out. We went in. They began to talk to us and, and ask us questions about, they ask a question about us. And I'm asking a question about the car, and they're asking questions about us. And they kept asking me, well, how much, how much of a payment can you make? And I said, to me, that's irrelevant. Number one, we were, we were in a position where we were going to pay cash for it. So I said, I, that's a, I said, well, tell me how much money you can pay per month. And, I, and this went on for a while. Do you remember that? And the pressure's mounting. And so finally, I just told the guy, okay, I'm gonna, I'm one more time, I'm going to ask you, how much do you want for that vehicle? And if you don't tell me, I'm walking out of here. <laughs> and he didn't tell me. And I'm walking out, and while I'm walking out, he's like, come back, come back. I said, I'm not coming back, you know, because they want to get you in a place where they can get you to do something that they want you to do rather than do something that's best for you. And so that's the way pressure is sometimes. Peer pressure is that way. And this was exactly what Saul was feeling. He was feeling this pressure to do something. And it may not seem on the surface like a big deal, but this is going to expose really the weakness of this leader. And that is, as, for God, as God's leader, you can't act on your impulsive emotions. You have, to, you have to learn to wait on God and trust God and let God lead you. And so, so that's, that's what I see in this scenario. And so what happened in verse 9? And Saul said... Bring hither a burnt offering to me and peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. Now, that's what Samuel was going to do. Samuel said, wait for me. When I get there, I'll offer this burnt offering. And, um, but Saul decided to take it upon himself. Saul knew it was wrong. And the people should have known. I'm, probably, I'm assuming they did know it was wrong. Why? Because this was not, he was a king, not a priest. Priests offered offerings, not kings. And so he was, he was stepping out of his role. He was taking upon himself more responsibility, more role than God intended for him to have. This was not his job. And it kind of reminds me of the political world. You know, one of the things that's got our country so messed up is we have people in the judicial branch whose job is not to make laws, 
who are making laws, and we have sometimes have presidents who are declaring things to be true, when in reality it's the legislative branch that's supposed to make laws, and, when you, and this is kind of what he's doing. He's stepping out of his area of responsibility. So in verse 10, after, after this happened, verse 10 it says, And it came to pass that it, this is such, an, a, a, to me, a very enlightening phrase right after this. As soon as he had made an end of offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him that he might salute him. So when Samuel arrived, Saul went out to greet him. Now, again, this shows there's, there's something very, very relevant and intriguing about this to me. Saul feels so much pressure, and as soon as he did what he knew he should not do, then all of a sudden Samuel showed up, who, who he was supposed to be waiting on. If, if he had just waited, if he'd just waited probably a matter of minutes or hours, if wasn't days, sure, if he'd have just waited, but he didn't wait. And so in verse 11, Samuel said to him, What hast thou done? And Saul said, Because I saw that the people were scattered from me, and that thou camest not within the days appointed, and that the Philistines gathered themselves together at Michmash, then said I, The Philistines will come down now upon me to Gilgal, and I have not made supplication unto the Lord. I forced myself therefore and offered a burnt offering. Now let's think about that for a moment. When Samuel said, Why, what are you doing? What are you thinking, knucklehead? That's knucklehead's not in there, but he, you know what he did? He began to do what men often do. He began to make excuses. Well, the, the Philistines, he said, look at what he said in verse 11. I saw the people were scattering from me. I mean, my army's dwindling. And you, you weren't here. You hadn't come within the time appointed. I thought, I thought you'd pass the deadline and the Philistines are gathered. So, so he, here he's making excuses to just, and who's he doing? He's blaming the people for forsaking him. He's blaming Samuel for running late. He's, bl he's blaming the Philistines because they're on He's blaming everybody but the person who blew it. And that's himself. And so he feels this pressure to, and, and I think it's, I made a note of this in the, in the lesson there under number two there near the bottom of the front page. He felt pressure to make supplication. To, he, he felt like he needed the Lord's help. He knew he needed the Lord's help. And, he, and the sacrifice he was going to make is making supplication. We're going to sacrifice to the Lord. We're going to sacrifice to the Lord because we need his help. And I felt like I needed I, the enemies. I got to attack the enemy, but I need to do this first. And so really, I need the Lord's help, but I'm going to disobey the Lord in doing it. Isn't that crazy? I need God's help. I'm going to do something that God didn't want me to do, but, but I, I need his help to do it. And he's just a confused person. And uh, in that statement, the end of verse 12, I force myself. That's an interesting statement. But what it tells me is he didn't have peace. He didn't feel comfortable about it himself. He didn't have peace about it, but he did it anyway. 
And truth is, we've probably all been there at some point in time in our life. You know, we didn't have peace about it, but we did it anyway because we felt like we had to do something. And that's not a good place to be. That's, that's not a good place to be. So how did, so what did Saul say? Look in verse 13, or what did Samuel say? And Samuel, Samuel said to Saul, Thou hast done foolishly. Thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God, which he commanded thee. For now would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever. In other words, it would be like a dynasty. If you would have done right, you, you, and your, you would continue to be king. Your, one of your sons would probably become king. You'd, you'd, if you would have just done the right thing, but you've done foolishly. Verse 14. 13, 14. But now, here are the consequences. Now thy kingdom shall not continue. Now I need to say this. He'll continue to be in the office of king after this because we'll remember when he's chasing after David and all this kind of stuff is going to happen after this. So, but, the, but in reality, his, his, his time is limited at this point because of what he did. Now thy kingdom shall not continue. The Lord hath sought him a man after his own heart. And the Lord hath commanded him to be captain over his people, this, this man, this new leader, because thou hast not kept that which the Lord commanded thee. So Saul had directly disobeyed God. Um, now, I've thought about this a lot of recent days, and I'm not really sure why, but I feel like one of the lessons from this ought to be understanding the consequences of disobedience. You know, like we sang in that song earlier, when we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, how God, trust and obey, trust and obey. That's what, that's what he failed to do. He failed to trust the Lord. He failed to obey. But... Unless I'm wrong about this, and I don't think I am, it, we can get to the place in our life where we don't really take obedience or disobedience as seriously as God treats it. And we'll see this. This wasn't his only mistake, you'll know. Whenever later on we'll cover this, when God told him to destroy the Amalekites and Agag, the king of the Amalekites, and he didn't do it, it's a track record. It's a, it's a way he, it's, 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 his, it's his character flaw. He didn't follow, he didn't obey the Lord. And there's this tendency in human nature to say, well, I'm obey, if I obey in this area, this area, and this area, then disobedience in this area is not that relevant. But that's all in our head. It's not taught in the Bible. Disobedience, again, in this next the next big failure he had against the Amalekites, the Bible says to obey is better than sacrifice. Uh, and stubbornness is as idolatry, right? So I think this is a lesson about the value of obedience. You know, when we disobey, it's not a, it may be a little thing in our mind, and it may be a little thing in the minds of other people, but when we disobey, it's not a little thing in the eyes of God. 
I, I think that's, that's one of the, to me, one of the clear takeaways from this, from this passage. And so, um, he says that God, verse, uh, number three there in your notes, his kingdom would be taken, from, the kingdom would be taken from Saul and given to a king who was after God's heart. And when Saul said this, he was speaking now as a prophet. I mean, Samuel. When Samuel said this, he was speaking as a prophet. He's a priest. He offers sacrifices. He's at, he follows the judges. He's not a king, but he's a priest. He offers sacrifices. And he's a prophet. He speaks words from God. He, and when he said this, put yourself in this scenario. Saul has sinned. Samuel, the man of God, says, you blew it. You acted foolishly. And God is going to replace you with a man after his own heart. Now, Samuel had no clue who that was. He didn't. You say, how do you know that? Because when he went to Jesse's house later to find the king, he went through the sons of Jesse and he said, is this all the kings there are? He didn't know who the king was going to be. He was just... And it was David, of course. This, and David was the one described as a man after God's own heart. So when, he, when, when Samuel said this, he was speaking a prophetic word. This is what God is going to do, but he didn't even know how that would be fulfilled. and Because uh, he didn't know who the next king would be. But he would be a man after God's heart. Now, you know, and, you know what do you think, number five there, under the, uh, wherever we are in our lesson, what do you think that means? In your mind, let's just, we got a few minutes. In your mind, what do you think it means? What does it mean to you? He's looking for a man after his own heart, after God's own heart. Any ideas, any questions, any thoughts? You guys are so responsive. Yeah, after, after, I agree, after the things that God's after. Someone who wants to obey God. Someone who wants to please God more than people. A man after God's heart. Samuel said he's looking for, you're not that person, Saul. You caved to pressure. You, you followed your own imaginations. God's looking for somebody that doesn't follow their own ideas, but God's looking for someone who follows after God's ways and and so this is, this is what God is looking for. By the way, that's what's still what God's looking for. You know. In Asa's day, in 2 Chronicles, in Asa's day, it says this, that he sought, you know, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in behalf of those whose heart is perfect toward him. That's what God's always looking for. People who have a heart for God. Not, not follow our imaginations, but follow what God wants. And so, so then at ver the end of verse 14, we find Samuel saying, Thou hast not kept that which the Lord commanded thee. And then look what it says in verse 15. And Samuel arose and got him up from Gilgal unto Gibeah of Benjamin. So what's missing here? What is, you know, in uh, verse number H in your notes. What's missing in Saul's response to Samuel? Samuel says, Samuel says, you forfeited your, your leadership opportunity. And Samuel got up and left. So what's missing in Saul's response? Huh? Yeah. 
He, he, didn't, he didn't acknowledge any wrongdoing. He didn't show, I'm sorry, I did this. There's no response like that on the part of Saul. He blamed it on the Philistines. He blamed it on Samuel. He blamed it on his own army. And this would have been a great place for Saul to have said, what, an, what a fool I've been. I am so sorry. There's no response, no repentance at all on his part. Now, we might look at this and say, man, God is really, God's really picky and serious. I mean, the guy messed up one time, and, and you know, God's taken the kingdom away from him. But you know what God knows about people? He knows that the problem wasn't that one decision. The problem was in his heart, in his heart, he wasn't following God. And even when he was told how wrong he was, he still didn't repent. What are you going to do with a person like that? Yeah, very good observation. Yeah, David wasn't sinless. He wasn't perfect. But his response when he was confronted with his sin meant he really wanted God's will. He really wanted God to work. So in this action, I, in this action, Saul demonstrated he could be impatient. He was. He was willing to cast aside the restrictions of his office, act on his own impulses. He was prone to direct, directly disobey God. And so when Samuel went to Gibeah, we looked at that a moment ago here in verse 15. Look what it says Saul did. And Saul numbered, verse 15, and Saul numbered the people that were present with him, about 600 men. So see, Saul, all he's interested in now is his army. He's not interested in getting his heart right. By the way, his army has grown from 3,000 to 600. <laughs> not good, right? But you know what? If he was trusting God, it would still work. Like, remember when Gideon, Gideon had his big army, and God said, let's whittle them down. You got too many people. Whittled them down to about 300, and God said, now I can work with that. It's not about how many we have. It's about knowing we're doing what God wants us to do. So, Jay there, Saul counted his soldiers. And if you follow on in this, and I'm not going to read all this, the, the Philistines now, they send their army out in three different directions, and they're, they're securing their control in that area. And a very, another, another very interesting thing, beginning in verse 19 and following, we don't have time to read all this. By the way, verse 19, in case you ever noticed this, this is worth underlining your Bible, the first part of verse 19. This is the saddest verse in the Bible, I promise you. There was no smith found throughout all the land of Israel. Doesn't that just make you want to drop the flag to half-mast or something? There was no smith. And what happened was the Philistines who are controlling the area, they, they removed the craftsmen, they removed the blacksmiths because they were the ones that would forge their swords and forge their weapons. And so there was a part of controlling them. And uh, so El, the army of Israel, was basically unarmed. And um, I'm not going to look this up, but number two under that, the Chaldeans used a similar strategy in 2 Kings 24, when the Babylonians captured the same people, Israel, one of the things the Babylonians did was took all the blacksmiths, it says that in that, te that texture, took all the blacksmiths to Babylon. You know why? Because they wanted, didn't want people to be able to make their own weapons, make 
be able to forge their own weapons. So, uh, down to the bottom, principles and lessons. Part of the reason for Saul's hasty action was pressure he was feeling. And we've already emphasized that. We can be overwhelmed ourselves by circumstances and deadlines. And B, this is an important lesson about principled living. And I, that phrase, I think, describes it. Living by principles, not by peer pressure, not by external circumstances, not by our own imaginations, but we're, our decisions should be guided and governed by truth, by God's word. And then C, we're reminded in this temptation of Saul that God's timetable is not always the same as ours. You know, Saul thought Samuel was late. But Samuel was right on time. And sometimes we think God is late. You know, we have to do something. And, and what we really need to do is get direction from God. Let God lead us. And, you know, we've all done it. And I've known others that have done it, that have made decisions that they later regretted because they, they used the, the material they used, the data, should say maybe better, the data they used to help them make a decision was not God's word and godly principles. It was what they imagined or what their circumstances told them or what they were feeling at the moment. And so that's, a, that's not a wise thing to do. And then the last thing, the Philistines' actions in removing the smiths, the blacksmiths, the craftsmen, shows how the enemy can, can use things like that, means to disarm and weaken God's people. You know, I was reminded this morning of the Dark Ages when, when the Roman Empire was under, in control and the Roman Empire was influenced by the Catholic religion and the bishops and the popes were just an extension of the evil Roman Empire. And during that period of the Dark Ages, literally, not, it's not an exaggeration, literally hundreds of thousands of Bible believers were killed because of the strong arm of the government. And when, when people like William Tyndale... And Wycliffe and these people begin to take, try to get the Bible out of the language, Latin or whatever it was in, and get it into the language of the common people. They were killed by the, by the government. You know, they just burn at the stake. And their crime was trying to translate the Bible into the language of the common people. You know why? Because they, if they, the, the organized religion of the day which was Catholicism. The religion of the day didn't want common people to have the Bible because if they got the Bible, they'd know that all these traditions were not even based on the Bible. They wanted to keep them in darkness. And, and by the way, that's, that's similar to, to what, what the enemy, our spiritual enemy, is, tries to do today, just to disarm us, to keep us from the Bible, to keep us from truth, keep us in the dark. But, and that's, the Philistines were very effective in what they were doing. And so when it came time for, 
Saul, Saul and Samuel to begin to fight against the Philistines, hardly anybody had a weapon. Now they had bows and arrows, they had things of that nature, but they didn't have, the, they didn't have near what the Philistines had. We see they had, a, they had amassed tremendous military power. So this to me is an important chapter because it gives us the beginning of the end for Saul's reign. It took us all this time to get a king and now within, in two years time now he's already disqualified himself from reigning. 